All right, last week we, we, we were in Romans 8. We looked at one verse, Romans 8, 18. And, uh, and we looked a little bit at Romans 8, 17. And the point was, the point that Paul was making that God wanted Paul to say was that the suffering that we experience in this life is nothing compared to the glory that we're going to see in eternity. We were blessed by that. And towards the end of the message, I listed a number of ways that we suffer with Christ. Verse 17 of Romans 8 tells us, it says, if we suffer with him. And it's, we talk, talk about what does that mean to suffer with, with Christ if he's already, you know, gone and, and waiting and coming back soon. He's not physically with us, so how do we suffer with Christ? And we looked at a number of, of ways. And there was one particular way that I didn't really mention last week that I think is fundamentally one of the most challenging ways that that believers suffer in this life but it's also one that we don't share a lot it usually comes out in a counseling context not necessarily one that I hear often said as public but it's 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 pervasive it's a very pervasive form of suffering that believers experience and today before we jump, move forward, I want to zoom in on this one aspect because I know of people in this room and other people where this particular aspect of suffering is real. And it does affect our relationship with the Lord significantly. So today I'd like you to open your Bibles to Psalm 73. And we are going to zoom in to this particular aspect of suffering. It's one I alluded to, but didn't really unpack. So today, we're going to unpack it and see how does this play out for us living in light of eternity. As you're turning there, I want to thank you for coming. It's warm today, so I know some people wanted to go to the park. That's fine. I'm not going to judge them. I'll let you do that. <laughs> All right, we're going to look at Psalm 73 this morning to see how does this unpack how we live in light of eternity as it relates to suffering. This is sort of a part two of last week's message, even though it's in a different passage. Beginning in verse one, reading from the CSB version. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're going to go through it bit by bit so that we can see this unfold. Beginning in verse 1, it says, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, verse 2, but as for me, my feet almost slipped, my steps nearly went astray. So this psalm begins with the psalmist identifying the character of God. So this psalmist at, at, at least is a believer in God to know enough about the character of God and to begin this psalm communicating the realities of that character of God by highlighting that God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. So this psalmist, Asaph, understands that God is good, and he does good things to those who are pure in heart. 
But then the psalmist makes a contrast in verse 2. So it highlights God is good, and he does good to those who are pure in heart, but then the contrast is now himself. But I, as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. There's a tension here. God is good, but something's wrong with me. Here's a tension. God is good. He says that outright. God is indeed good. Indeed is emphatic. No question. God is good. Something's wrong with me, though. There's a tension. Remember this tension. We're going to remember this tension because it's going to become really important in a few moments. He goes on to say this in verse 3. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die. And their bodies are well fed. Okay, listen to what he's saying. He has attention. God is good. I'm not. And then he takes his eyes off of himself and he looks at the landscape. He's introducing us in to what he's seeing. And he says, I envied the arrogant and the prosperity of the wicked. So despite being a believer who understands the goodness of God and God's character, he recognizes that even though God is good towards those who have a pure heart, he still, as a believer who understands the character of God, recognizes something in himself that he still envies the wicked. God has a good heart, and he does good to those who have a pure heart, but I admire those who have an evil heart. He says, I envied the arrogant. I want to be like them. I like the bravado. And we all do. I mean, we're trained by Hollywood to root for the main character in the action film who disobeys all orders, goes against the grain, and saves the day. It's a rare occasion, rare occasion, that the main character is humble. It's a rare occasion. It's so rare that we say people are down to earth. Where else are they going to be? <laughs> the psalmist envies the arrogant and the prosperity. So he envies the attitude that unbelievers have and the possessions that they have. Despite knowing God is good and does good to the pure in heart, I still admire those who are evil in heart. Now, mind you, if God is good and does good to the pure in heart, then by default, he treats those who are not pure in heart differently. And despite that reality, the psalmist is saying, I envy what they have and how they act. He says they have an easy time until they die. 
These people have easy lives. Their lives look easy. And they have what they need. This is a believer who believes that God is good in character, and yet he admires those who are wicked at heart. This isn't just about admiring the rich and famous. This is deep. God is good. I see that. But I still am breaking the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment. The last one, do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his oxen or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And he's saying, man, I envy what they have. I want what they have. I like their attitude. Despite the fact that I know God is good, I like the attitude that they have. And I want the possessions that they have. He keeps going. Verse 5. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. You see what he's saying? The people who are wicked and arrogant, they don't suffer. They don't suffer. And if they do, I can't tell. And if they do, I would rather have that suffering than the suffering I'm going through. They look like they have it all figured out. They don't suffer. Now, this is a very significant theme. Because I don't know if you know this or not. If you, if you strip away all the stuff that's happening in the culture, if you strip away all of the desires that people have and us needing to approve of and acquiesce to anything that anyone says about themselves, do you know the main argument is if you refuse someone their identity or their perspective on themselves, it will cause them harm. It's an act of violence. You know what it's saying? It'll cause them to suffer. So your responsibility, my responsibility, is to eliminate suffering from people. Even if that means eliminate logic and reason. My responsibility more than anything else is to not cause other people to suffer. And if I disagree with who you say you are or how you look, I'm causing you to suffer. My job is to eliminate suffering. The problem is suffering is fundamentally a part of humanity. It's fundamental. This is what Jesus came to suffer. If you take away suffering from humanity, no one needs Jesus. If you take away suffering from humanity, there's no need for the kingdom. But this is the culture we're in. Eliminate suffering or you're going to suffer. This reality of not wanting to suffer is pervasively human. And he's looking at these people and saying, man, they don't suffer. They don't suffer. God is good, and he's good to the pure in heart. But these people don't suffer. They have, the, they have the nice cars. They have the money. No one will ever do an MTV Cribs about my house. Never. 
but you're laughing at your house either. MCV Cribs is not coming to your house. We are not privy to that. For whatever money, the, the wealthiest person in this room is nothing compared to people who live over in Kettering or who live in Potomac or in Bethesda or in certain neighborhoods in northwest D.C. Back in the day, we used to drive through different, when there was a neighborhood in Potomac, Maryland. It was a boxer from, from uh, Mike's neighborhood named Sugar Ray Leonard. Y'all remember Sugar Ray? Y'all don't know about no Sugar Ray. And so he used, to, <laughs> he used to have a house in this neighborhood in Potomac. And so I was living in Gatesburg with my mom, and we used to drive over, drive in that area, and we'd look at these houses. And we'd drive around, and we'd all be like, man, that's, that's going to be my house right there. Like, yeah, that's my house right there, the drug cartel lookout house. <laughs> I always wanted those. And we, but we knew where his house was. I'd be like, man, this is Sugar Ray Leonard's house. We pull up, look at it. It was massive. That was the outside. It was incredible. We loved it. We admired that. We wanted to be that. We wanted to have it. I mean, people spend money on the lottery hoping to one day hit it big. It is fundamentally human. But the challenge is he's a believer. He's a believer who knows God is good, but he admires the wicked. He says this in verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment because these people don't suffer, because they're not afflicted, they're confident. They're confident. Pride is their necklace. They're untouchable. They're untouchable. So they're violent towards people. Why? Because there's no consequences. There's no consequences for what they do, so they're above the law, above others, they're even above obedience because there are no consequences. And the psalmist, the believer, is watching all of this. And there's just coveting, sinful comparison in his heart. He believes God is good, but he sees all these other people like, man, they have all the stuff that I want. All I have is God is good. All they have is all the good stuff. This isn't a Psalm 73 Asaph suffering. To some degree, many of us struggle with seeing what other people have and not having that ourselves. And let's just be honest. This context is about those who are unbelievers. But as believers, we can struggle with what other believers have. They look like they have a flawless marriage. There can be... <laughs> now make sure y'all notice one thing. Sheila's not here. I don't want no problems. I don't want no trouble. But is this not a reality? Do we not struggle with? Have you not gone to a church or even in this church and seen 
girls who are just loose and do whatever or being sexual immorality and get all the relationships and then you're the one pure and trying to honor the Lord and yet you're waiting for a husband. There's nobody in this church that can relate to that? You can't relate to, you can't relate to seeing people who just know people and get opportunities financially and yet you struggling to get a job. You praying for a job, the Lord knows you need a job, and you know people who don't honor who just get all these, they got all these job all these job interviews lined up. And you're like, man, I you're not even faithful to put chairs away in church. <laughs> oh, it's easy to see other people. But it hurts deeper when you see these are people who don't even believe in the goodness of God, yet they get, it seems like they get all the good stuff. Remember, this is God's word. This isn't a poem I wrote. This is his word. The psalmist is a believer, but look at what he's starting to believe. Verse 7. He says their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imagination of their hearts run wild. Verse 8, they mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. He's saying, look, these people invent evil. They invent ways to sin against the Lord. And there's no consequences. They invent ways. You know, by God's grace, he protects us from seeing all the evil that's in the world. You have to watch certain documentaries or certain things to realize, like, whoa, this is a real thing that happened? You ever watch some of them Vice documentaries, and it's like, huh? This happens in Brazil? I thought this was just a movie. This is real. People invent ways to be evil, to do harm. Just their imaginations run wild. These people have no fear of God. No fear at all. And he's looking at this and he's saying, man, God is good and he does good to the pure in heart. But all the people who are wicked at heart, it looks like God is being good to them. All of a sudden, verses like, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And if you're honest, you say, I have. <laughs> or at least I think I have. This psalmist isn't superhuman. He's just being real. And even in this day, he looks at people who are sinful, non-believers. He's a believer, and he sees what they have, and he's like, man, those are some of the things that I want. He continues on in verse 10. And this is what it becomes crazy. He says this, therefore, his people. Now, this connection is referring to God. Look at verse 9. They set their mouths against heaven, and their arrogant tongues strut across the earth. So these people are clearly unbelievers. Their mouths are against heaven. These are the atheists, the, the arrogant people of the day. Their mouths are against heaven. They have nothing good to say about God, about eternity, about heaven. And they have influence all over the earth. Their tongues strut across the whole earth. And that influence is so significant that in verse 10, therefore his, 
the good God's people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. Their influence is so significant that even other believers now want to follow them as well. And not just want to, but they turn to them. They look to these people. They compromise what they know about God. I'll never forget this. This was a long time ago. I was, I was going to this church, and this was around the time Miss Cleo was out. Remember Miss Cleo? Some of y'all phone bills got hit because y'all called her. Okay, for those of you that don't know, Miss Cleo was this lady with a, a Jamaican accent because she wasn't really Jamaican, so it was Jamaican. She was a lady posing as a Jamaican, and she would read tarot cards and tell you your future and all this stuff. And she'd have all these commercials. And people would call up and be like, okay, I'm just calling to know, like, is he my baby's father? And she'd be like, She'd be like, girl, let me tell you the card, what the card says. She'd flip them over and be like, oh, the one who's the father is the one who treated you not right yesterday with a blue car. Oh, my gosh. And people would call and call and call, and she would make all this money. And then one day they revealed she was a scam artist. And then after that, shortly after that, she died. She died. But I remember believers. I remember believers calling her number. And they would talk about it at the church I was in as if it was a good thing. And I used to laugh. I was a little much more immature then, but I was just like, you called Miss Cleo? <laughs> I didn't really, see, I, w- I was immature, so I didn't think about divination and things like that. I wasn't thinking about that stuff. I wasn't even thinking biblically. I was just thinking, hey, listen. I'll give you something, I'll tell you something for 1099 a minute. <laughs> I would not, I even call, I even nicknamed people Cleo for a while. I was like, you're not living that down. You call Miss Cleo. As a matter of fact, I see him today, you call Miss Cleo. <laughs> they were drawn to this. How many times have you met someone? I see this happen with women all the time. They meet a guy, they like him, and he's not a believer, and they want to evangelize and save him. And next thing you know, they walk away from the Lord. I'm not calling nobody out of my church. I'm just saying what happens in reality. They walk away from the Lord. They walk away. You try to change the dude and want to be in relationships, and, and, t- and all of a sudden, you get changed. The psalmist is saying here, their influence is so significant because arrogance, you know, it's funny. Why are the people who are the, the coolest people are the ones who don't believe? Why is that? Why is it the people who do not fear God? They're the most popular. They got the most money. They're the best looking. Why is that? Why is it that people who do fear God, why are we drawn to them? We believe God is good. We believe he's good to the pure in heart. But we desire to be like and to be around and even receive wisdom and influence from those who are not good. Those who have no regard for God. Those who don't care. You'll support people who mock the God you love. Sometimes mocking people who love God like you.
The psalmist says this in verse 11. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the most high know everything? How can God know? Does the most high know everything? I wish somebody would ask me that. Especially using this word. Like what you call the most high for? You know why it's like this in the world? Because the psalmist is saying that these people know God is something, but they still don't care. Remember, Jesus said, not everyone who said to me, Lord, Lord. There are people who understand the reality of God. They still don't care. They don't care because there's no consequences for their actions. You know, the grace of God often will delay consequences or sometimes not allow them to come upon us the way they should. Because he gives us time to repent, to change, to grow. And there are people who take that and say, man, there's no consequences. I did this, nothing happened. That's what recently, y'all know the story, what makes the story of these actors and actresses who paid for their kids to cheat on their college exams and like Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin and some of these people. What's making the, the reason why that's such a big story, you know why that's a big story and why it has been such a huge story? Because there's actually consequences now for these people. That's the only reason why it's a story. Nobody's, I, I, don't, I mean, there's, there's, there's no story. The only reason why there's a story is because, oh, wow, they're actually charging these people. Wow, she's actually going to do some prison time. I remember when Martha Stewart went to, went to jail. Well, first of all, let's keep it. Martha Stewart went to, like, a hotel plush I mean, the sweater that she made in there sold for like a couple million. I would gladly go to prison if I could make something in there and sell a couple million when I get out. I would pay all of y'all credit off. Mother Stewart, when it came out, was more popular than ever. The only reason why it's a story is because of the consequences for these people. You know why? Because most of the times, the people that have the finances, the people that have the riches, the people that have the influence, no consequences happen to them. No consequences. They happen to us. No consequences happen to these people. So now, consequences are happening, and it's newsworthy. It's newsworthy. Because now you're going to prison too. Because if we did that, we would go to prison a lot longer than Felicity Hoffman did. These people invent evil. How does God know? Verse 12, look at them. The wicked, they are always at ease and increase their wealth. Remember the tension. I know God is good, and he's good to the pure in heart. I know that. However, what I'm watching, he said the problem is me, but I, my foot almost slipped. It's me. I'm the problem. God is good. I'm the problem. But I'm watching all this stuff happen to all the people who are not good. And if God is good to the pure in heart, then by default, he's not going to be the same to those who are not pure in heart. So why is all this happening for these people? What's going on here? God is good to people who are pure in heart. Yet the psalmist is saying all 
all the people who are evil getting the good treatment so they don't suffer. They have what they need. They have influence, money. Their lives look simple. Their lives look simple. And it bothers them. And if we're honest, sometimes it discourages us. It's a discouragement. You have integrity on your job and the person who doesn't get the promotion. How does this person become your manager and they didn't contribute to the project? You've been on this job 15, 20 years. And this young person comes in and takes the position just because they're you? You see people who do whatever they want and there are no consequences. And you can't even eat bread without getting sick. There's so many things that happen and you watch these and you think, man. The psalmist is observing all of this. And then he makes the observation from them to directly his heart. And he asks this question in verse 13, which I think is a good, honest question. After seeing all of this, he says this. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For nothing? Now think about what he's saying. The tension is God is good. The problem is me. But this question changes the tension. Because if he's saying that I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing, then I'm believing that God is no longer good to those who are pure in heart. And I'm wondering if the obedience that I've been living, if the way that I've been fighting to honor the Lord is actually even worth it because the people who don't honor the Lord seem like they're doing better than I am, which by default means that something is wrong with the Lord. This is now shifted from God is good in verse 1 of Psalm 73 to now I'm not sure anymore. I'm not so sure anymore. And I kid you not, you and I have both seen many people walk away from the faith with this very question. Maybe posed differently, but the same thing. And we've been tempted the same way. What is the point? How do these people have this great marriage and travel and look like they're always in love and we can't even get along? We can't even have a conversation. Now, mind you, if you're only evaluating that on Facebook, you fooled. <laughs> Listen, nobody, well, I'll say the majority. There are some people that would do that for attention. Most people put the best pictures, the best situations on Facebook. You ain't going to put, man, just argue with my wife. It was a terrible date. I, mean, I tell you what, man, I don't know why. Let me tell you something. Don't get married. You know, most times it's like you're the most loving, faithful person I know. You don't put out, you know, you ain't going to put out, man, you, your breath stinks. You don't. My husband showers every couple of days. I'm like, he wants to touch me. Like, no. You don't see that stuff on Facebook. You don't see it. You don't see the bad stuff on social media. But the reality is, it's still a question that we wonder, like, man, 
I'm not getting anything I'm praying for. All the stuff I desire, it's like, man, is it wrong for me to want this? Is it wrong for me to want a baby? Is it, is it wrong for me to want a different job, a, a career? Is it wrong for me to want to get married? Is it wrong for me to want to, is it, is it, I mean, should I stop praying for my such and such to be saved? He said, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? This is now, is God really who he is? Look at verse 14. Here's the contrast. For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. Look at the contrast. Now the tension has changed. It was God is good and he's pure. The problem is me to now. I suffer, but they don't. Is God good? I'm afflicted all day and punished every morning. Somebody in here is like, man, they might work where I work at. What's going on here? I think this is a fair question to ask. They have it all. We're struggling. But we're trying to honor the Lord. They don't care about him. But it seems like circumstantially he cares about them. For some people, this is it. This is the last straw. They open the door and they walk away from the household of faith. This is it. This is it. This is not working. I read my Bible, nothing. I pray, nothing. But my friends who are just giving in to sin, they are loving life right now. This is the reality. And it's so gripping for the psalmist. It's so gripping that he says this in verse 15. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. In other words, if I had said what I was really thinking and struggling with, I would have caused other people to struggle. This is so deep that I got to keep this to myself. Because if I tell other people, other believers what I'm struggling with, it might tempt them to struggle. Because I'm wrestling right now, I'm suffering, and I'm trying to wonder, is God a good God or not? Because if I evaluate it based on what I see other people who don't know him have, I'm struggling. I'm sorry. I'm struggling. And this struggle does not escape any of us in this room. It may not be what you struggle with right now. Great. But it does not escape any of us. And they said, man, this is so damaging to me that if I even tell other, I don't even want to tell other people what I'm struggling with. So not only are you struggling with God, 
not only are you envying and desiring the, the attitude and the possessions of the wicked, you are also distancing yourself from the, your other believers, your brothers around you. You can't even tell people what you're struggling with because you think you're trying to protect them because your struggles are so deep, you don't even want to bring them into them. And don't think for a moment that doesn't happen in a church like this. Don't think for a moment that you know everything your closest friends are going through. Don't think for a moment. This is a crazy reality. And in verse 16, it says, when I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. This does not make sense to me. Why do I struggle with anxiety and they don't? Why do I struggle with fear? Man, how come such and such can go up there and speak in front of people and it's no big deal, but if I stand up in front of people, I won't be able to breathe? Why is it easy for them? Why does my child have challenges and theirs don't? doesn't make sense. It's not fair. God is good. He's good to those who are pure in heart. But wait a minute. All the people who are wicked in heart have more than those who are pure in heart, at least from my vantage point. So I'm wondering if being pure in heart is actually worth it. Does God, is God actually good to those who are pure in heart? And this is so deep that I can't even tell other people what I'm going through because I don't want to tempt them to suffer. And it doesn't make sense. So how do you get out of this mindset? How does the psalmist Get out of this perspective. What needs to happen to feel different? Do you need to get rid of all desires? You know, there are some religions that are based on just get rid of all your desires. Some religions are like, look, the goal in life is to have no desires. Good luck. Because there isn't, I would say, 99.9% .9 of all humanity have a desire to live. So if you say the goal is to get rid of all desires, then you got to die. There's no life then. There's no goal because you're not around to pursue it. It's impossible to get rid of all desires. It's impossible. It's impossible. So what do you do? What do you do? Do you walk away from the Lord? Is this really what I have to suffer as a believer? This perspective stops people from praying. Like, what's the point of praying? I've been praying for a long time. These people, nothing happens. These people prayed, and then all of a sudden, bam. And then my uncle died of cancer. And about a couple weeks before that, we prayed for a woman in this church right here. 
that she would have cancer here. And I, I love that woman, so I was glad that the Lord answered that prayer. My uncle died a few weeks later as an unbeliever. I was heartbroken because he was too young. My granddad died a year later. My granddad was 82. I was prepared. He lived a good life. But my uncle was in his 50s. I was like, wow. Now, I didn't question why did she get healed and not him because I was glad she got healed. But why not my uncle too? It doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to the psalmist until verse 17. Until I entered God's sanctuary. Until I entered God's sanctuary, then I understood their destiny. You see, he realized that we're living in light of eternity and that what we see now is going to be different than what we'll see then. It's going to be different. The destiny of those who reject God because they have too much in this life, this life is their reward. You see, when you have an eternal perspective, when, as, when you do, as Jesus said, set your mind on things above, you realize that whether I have a lot in this life or a little, there is another life to come. And all the people who reject God, who mock me for believing in God, and who make fun of what I believe, and who put harm on me because of what I believe, they think there's no consequences because there are none right now. It doesn't seem to be any consequences for them. But he said, but I, as I started to think about their destiny, things changed for me. But here's the, here's the catch, though. This doesn't sound like a Christian perspective. I'm gaining comfort from the fact that other people are going to go to hell. How Christian of you. Now this is God's word. So what is happening? The psalmist says, when I entered the sanctuary and I saw their destiny, things started to change for me. So how do we as Christians who are commanded to love your neighbors, how do we have this? This is a new tension. Because he's gaining comfort from knowing that their prosperity is short-lived. So how do we balance this tension? Because it sounds like the comfort that we get is knowing that people are going to be judged by God. They have a different destiny than me. Isn't it sinful to think this way? I'm glad you asked. We have to remember that part of being made in God's image, part of being made in his image, and then when you're a believer, more so, is the attribute of justice. Like God's people care about justice. And even though we're commanded to love other people, Paul's the only one actually in Scripture who said, I would rather give up my eternal salvation and destination for the nation of Israel. He's the only one that said that. As believers, justice and wanting God's justice 
to demonstrate itself is a fundamental part of believing in him. Let me prove this to you. One scene in Revelation 6, fifth seal. Here's what happens. Verses 9 through 11. I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to wait for you to turn there. Your fingers are too slow. He said this, when he, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Now, this is John's revelation. That John, God allowed John to see a multitude of people who had been killed, a multitude of people who identify with Psalm 73, that have been slaughtered. These aren't people who just died as believers. These are people who experienced death because they were believers. And they're crying out, when are you going to judge the people who killed us and avenge our blood? Verse 11, so they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been done. God doesn't offer correction for the perspective. He just says, wait. You know why? Because God's justice is part of his character. And our faith in God doesn't include just God's mercy. We also want God's wrath and his justice because it's fundamentally a part of his character. And despite the fact that we know we should love others, there's a reality that many people are going to reject God and are going to experience the consequences for that. And it is biblical to desire justice. Now, that's a tension because I want the justice of God but I also want the mercy of God to take place. So here's how I think we practically manage that. You know, when David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, she was giving birth to a baby, and David was, was fasting. He was praying and fasting and crying out to the Lord that the baby would be saved. And then at some point, they came in and told David, the baby died. So the scripture says David got up, washed himself off, and started to get something to eat. And the people said, hey, David, the baby died, bro. Like, you look like you're doing okay. And David said, hey, listen, man. When there was a chance for the baby to be saved, I fasted, I prayed. And I cried out, the Lord has spoken. I can't do anything else. So life goes on. This is an illustration of the tension. Do we love God's mercy? And we want God's mercy and grace. But there comes a time where we also have to say, bring on your justice. Bring on your wrath, God. 
that we don't just trust God in the justice and the mercy and grace. We have to also trust him for the justice and wrath. That's fundamentally a part of believing. So the psalmist, he's looking at this and saying, their destination has changed the way I view my present day suffering. Justice is a part of that. Another thing that we have to remember is it's not sinful to want the Lord to keep his promises. And the Lord doesn't just promise mercy and justice and grace. He also promises vengeance and wrath and judgment. This is the tension. You cannot want God to just be mercy and grace and ignore that he's justice and wrath. Mercy means many people will not get what they deserve. Justice means you get exactly what you deserve. Now, some people can get offended at that. But what's funny is we don't get offended at that in the justice system that we have in our country. If someone commits a particular crime, like as a matter of fact, when, when uh, Jeffrey Epstein, that's his name, people joke about how he died, but there were many people that were glad he's dead because of what he did. Because for many people, that was justice. You ruined all these women's lives. Justice. People felt that. People celebrated. They meme and mock and all of that stuff. Some of these people were believers, at least they professed to be. A lot of them weren't. But you know what? Because me, being made in God's image, we all have a sense of justice and fairness. This is why little kids can be like, that's not fair. He took my... Why? Because justice is built within humanity. Fairness and right. If you have children, especially small children, and they do something like knock their juice over, tell them, all right, you're not, you're not going outside and having fun for a week. They're like, huh? They don't even know math, math but they'll compute that up like, huh? Be like, mm. like, hold on, that's, that's too much justice. <laughs> that's too much wrath. It's built within our DNA, but when we become a believer, we accept the reality, even if it challenges us. So the psalmist is saying, listen, for me to get to the point where my perspective is changing, I looked at their destiny, and I realized that the goodness and the pureness of God, it's like these people are getting, getting over here, and they're going to get over there. So he's saying, no, 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 no. Their destiny proves this is all they have. This is all they have. So he says in verse 18, indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. Like one waking from a dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. This is the reality. That in this life, part of the suffering we experience as believers will be watching those who don't believe 
do seemingly better than us. I know some non-Christians who have wonderful relationships with their children. And I know some solid, fundamental, godly believers whose children not only have walked away from the faith, but them. And it's like, huh? Didn't the scriptures say train up a child in the way they would go and they'll never depart from them? Without an eternal perspective, all that we see here is like, man, I'd rather, I'd rather enjoy my life and have fun like them. But when we have an eternal perspective and we realize one life, all life, then when Paul says, I consider that your present suffering is not worth compared to the glory that will be revealed. Starts to connect. Starts to connect. He says this, when I became embittered in my, listen to this, verse 21, when I became embittered in my innermost being, so this was deep. This wasn't just like I, I was in a bad mood one day. This is, I was in a bad season. My innermost being was wounded because of this. In other words, it's possible to be a believer, to watch other people look like their lives are doing well. You're trying to honor the Lord and you feel like you're suffering. And to be deeply affected by that. Listen, that is part of the suffering. That is not antithetical to being a believer. For some of us, that is a part of the process of maintaining and preserving one. Because honestly, if there was no suffering in this life, then we wouldn't have to, we wouldn't want to live anywhere else. If life were, if there really was heaven on earth, then why would we want heaven with God? I mean, many of us have to train ourselves because we want to get to heaven so that we don't suffer. We don't even think, I want to get to heaven so I can see Jesus. So we have to even condition our minds to think, wait a minute. Heaven is not about my not suffering. Heaven is about my seeing Jesus. You know, you look at all of Revelation. There's one verse that talks about your suffering being taken away, our suffering. Re Revelation 21.8 says, I will wipe every tear from their eye. The rest of Revelation is about taking away suffering from us. It's about seeing Jesus and Jesus' reign becoming an actuality that we can see. And while our suffering will minimize, that's not what heaven's about. Our destiny, to use the language, is about being with God in his sanctuary. It's easy to be bitter at God. Because he can change everything. You see, the real issue was the psalmist thought God wasn't keeping his promises about the wicked. So he wondered, man, is this really true? Remember when, when Jesus was telling his disciples that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than the rich to be saved? Remember that? And then Peter was like, well, then who can be saved? 
They were confused by that. Because it's like, well, that's the, if, they're, if, the, if the people who are blessed aren't saved, then, then what about us? And Peter said, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus said, anyone who's given up father, mother, siblings, or whatever, for my sake and the gospels, they will be with me. They will be with me. It's not sinful to expect God to keep his promises. Even the ones that deal with his wrath. So that's a tension for us. We love our neighbors. and We want grace and mercy for them. But if we love our neighbors and want grace and mercy so much so that we act as if God's justice and wrath is somehow out of character, then we're out of character. Then we're out of step. And part of our suffering and part of the glory that we're going to receive is seeing God be glorified and his enemies be under his feet. We just hope that us and our loved ones aren't among those who are counted as enemies. But there will be many. And we will not be in eternity disappointed. We will celebrate God's justice and wrath. There will be a lot of Abrahams. And there will be a lot of rich men that was in hell. There will be a lot of Lazaruses. And a lot of people who didn't make it. Remember the Lord said, man, you had everything you needed on earth. But Lazarus, this man, he was getting licked by dogs on the street. And now he's in Abraham's bosom. And now you're in eternity. Receiving the justice. Because you got the good life here. You rejected God here. You're going to accept him there. The psalmist's eternal identity starts to come back. It's coming back. It says, 22, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal towards you. In other words, I thought the problem was you. I thought you were unfair. I wasn't thinking. I thought you're letting all these people get away with, with murder. Literally. Then I realized no one gets away with anything from God's perspective. And he says this, in conclusion, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Now notice, no circumstances changed. The wicked didn't get punished, and the psalmist didn't get stuff that he wanted. Nothing changed circumstantially here. The only thing that changed was my eternal perspective kicked in. And the glory that I'm going to be receiving is better than the suffering I'm now living in. That's the only thing that changed, his perspective. And that perspective change changed the way he viewed his suffering. To live in light of eternity and to embrace the reality of suffering 
in this life. Remember last week. When we believe in Jesus, we choose to suffer, but we don't choose our suffering and we don't choose how long it lasts. The psalmist had a Romans 8.18 moment. And there are times we need a Romans 8.18 moment. That our present suffering is not worth being compared to the glory that, as this psalmist said, we will be taken up to. So for all of us, we must have the perspective that we desire on earth God. That even though our flesh and our heart fail, we remember that God is the strength of our heart and our portion. Verse 27 and 28. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge so I can tell about all you do. So even though the psalmist has that tension, he's still willing to talk about who God is and what God does. But he accepts the reality that in this life, the wicked do prosper. That's part of the allure. And for believers, that's part of the suffering because we often want the things that other people have. And the things that people have that are not believers is it seems worth it. And it is worth it if only this life matters. If this is all we have, then go after everything. Why not? But we know this isn't all that there is. And so we believe in Jesus. He chose us. We choose to suffer for his glory and for our good. So for those of us who struggle with why do they have all the stuff? Remember that you have the God who created all that stuff. Let's pray. Father, we are aware of a variety of ways that we struggle, that we can, we can find ourselves in, in different verses in this psalm. There are moments or snapshots where we can agree the question of, are we doing this for no reason? All of these things are a part of the process of trusting you. For if you made our lives suffer free, then we wouldn't have any reason to trust you. If you always answered every prayer to our liking or if, the, if we always heard from you exactly what to do in every situation, we'd have no need for faith. So when you don't tell us things that we need or you don't allow us to have things that we're praying for, at least in the moment, or if you allow the suffering to be prolonged, if you, if you don't return relationships back, if you don't do all of the things that are, cause us suffering and we, and we continue to trust and persevere in you, then may, according to your word, may that carry us. May, may you be enough in the midst of difficulty. I pray that you help us to grasp the tension of loving our neighbors and still having 
justice and, and, mercy and wrath be a part of your character and us trusting that. It's another tension that we hold. While we don't want to celebrate and mock those who are not going to be in eternity with you, we also understand that it is a privilege to be counted among those who will spend eternity with you. And that because of that, we live for your glory. We live for the glory now to see and live in that glory later. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, but also for your justice and also for your wrath. May we in this room and those whom we love, may we not be counted among those who experience it. But may we also not be those who arrogantly assume you shouldn't display it. It is just as much as who you are as the mercy and grace that we've received. In your name we pray. Amen.